Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Last year, $1.1 trillion were allocated globally toward the transition to carbon-free energy, her data released earlier this year by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. That level of clean energy investment marked a significant milestone as the first year in which money directed to clean energy equaled investment in the global oil and gas industry. Yet rising clean energy investment masks a critical barrier to the deployment of climate technologies and infrastructure. Many of these technologies are new and relatively unproven. As they're rushed by climate necessity to market, they inherently carry risks that can create a disincentive to investment, in particular for investors that are not accustomed to weighing such risks. On today's podcast, we'll look at the nature of climate technology risk and why that risk poses a barrier to investment. My guest is Nick Rolliter, a Penn alumni and former editorial assistant to this podcast. During his time at Penn, Nick co-founded a company that seeks to address commercialization and technology risks with the goal of accelerating the deployment of climate solutions. As part of our conversation, we'll talk about Nick's background in the fossil fuel industry, his shift in focus to clean energy, and how he came up with the idea for his business as a graduate student here at Penn. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Nick, it's great to finally have you on the podcast. It has been fantastic to work with you over the last couple of years. You've added so much. And just to get started, I wanted to say thank you for all that you've contributed to this podcast. Well, we've, we've had a great time, and now we're co-teaching a class, so more, more to come. <laughs> Looking forward to it. So I wonder if we could start today by talking about your experience with the podcast. Why did you want to participate? What brought you to us? Well, I think there's a, there's a number of things. And, and you know, my background uh, is largely on the technical side of things. So deeply rooted in engineering and finance. And, you know, the one thing I think that out of, you know, the three-legged stool that I would call my skill set that I was missing is really the policy side. And when you step into classes that are focused on policy, it's usually from a very theoretical perspective, whereas I was at a point in my professional and academic journey where I was seeking an applicational experience. And so you know, the podcast really allowed me, one, it forced me to keep up with news that I would put on the back burner, which is was a hugely helpful um, just structural <laughs> force mechanism uh, in my day-to-day experience, but it also forced me to really think critically about high-level topics concerning energy policy and the energy transition and really condense them down into silos of experts within the professional world, academia, and related other areas that could opine on these in a sophisticated manner and then work with some of that content to make it translated it to be digestible with you into an audience like the Energy Policy Now podcast listenership. I've learned so much from you about the finance side of things working with you on this podcast. And and I hope you've learned so much about the policy side as well. So I think it's actually been a really, really great partnership both ways. You have a, a really interesting background in the energy industry that I want to get into here for a moment. You're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you grew up in a family that was focused on the fossil fuel industry. I wonder if you could describe your interest growing up in Oklahoma in the fossil fuel industry and, and kind of how that's shaped what you're doing now. Extremely atypical path into alternative energy and climate. And so I, you know, I grew up in Tulsa, as you mentioned. Uh, my family you know, is entirely employed in the oil, gas, chemicals, and coal industry. You know, really starting with uh, you know, my grandfather immigrated here 
got a scholarship to go to military school, fought for the U.S. military in World War II, got wounded, used the GI Bill to go to MIT, and then on a whim moved from New York City to Oklahoma to work for a pipeline company. And so um, that kind of translated into getting the idea to really, you know, it, a structural innovation at the time, not really too terribly technological, really looked at, okay, how, how do you, the, the U.S., energy system was getting developed post-World War II. And so what they did is they bought a defunct railroad that went effectively from sh- Chicago to West Texas and used that existing right-of-way in place to build a pipeline. Hmm. And so from that, you know, what ended up happening is he built up that company with his partners into one of the only Fortune 500 companies that was based in Tulsa. And so, you know, growing up, you know, they were majorly a fabric of that community, a large employer in that community, and you know, really deeply rooted in the oil and gas industry. And that company evolving from this idea of a pipeline company into really uh, a multifaceted business encompassing production, pipelines, trading, operating refineries, and then subsequently a coal business. And so, you know, I, I think that what I learned growing up around that is you. Energy across manifesting itself in refineries, pipelines, trading, geopolitics, and other coal, other matters related to this was really a dinner table conversation. And so I was forced to a lot of knowledge on the history of energy by design in my interactions with my family, um, which I think really has helped me think pragmatically about how to bridge the gap between you know going to school at UPenn. The, uh, with people in the Northeast, how they think about that. And then people down in Texas, how they think about that too. It's a, a fundamentally different approach to the energy transition uh, and energy more broadly when you weave in all the stakeholders and thought proceeds at play that have to come together. It really is a different perspective. So, so now you've focused your professional career to date and your academic career really on, on combating climate change. So that's quite a shift from the industry that you were working on, you know, focused on, on fossil fuels. What got you started down the current path? Was there kind of an aha moment uh, somewhere along the line that, that got you interested in climate? One, as a kid growing up in Oklahoma, uh, largely with my grandparents who grew up with nothing, if I didn't have football practice, soccer practice, or any kind of academic activity, I was working construction jobs in the oil field, uh, which is a whole other kind of worms there. But the the important thing there is that, like, you know, really saw some of the ecosystem damage firsthand, uh, which really shaped me. And then subsequently, you know, spending a lot of time with my grandfather as a second point, you really learned the fundamental drivers of the natural resource and resource business, how I think about that quantitatively and throw, throw everything else out, right? And so if you look at natural resource industry by design, the, uh, we have a finite amount of resources on this planet, and we're you know, we're fortunate enough to discover fossil fuels. We've shifted from coal to oil and gas, and now to alternative energy. And I think that you know the the one thing that really shaped me that I learned from him is that you know by design in my lifetime, due to just the structural pressure on the resource endowment that the world has, there will be a natural shift in the way we consume function predicated on the basis that the planet will become the central stakeholder due to the existential crisis of climate change. And so those are really the two the two main things. And I think, you know, the, the third thing that um, I started to really think about over time is I mentioned earlier, you know, the the polarizing nature of this business and just the different, you know, this this divergence of process in, you know, the middle of the country 
and then the north, you know, the northeast of the coastal cities. And, and I thought that, you know, I really this became on display going to school in the northeast is, you know, being from Oklahoma and having experience with people in this part of the this part of the country, especially as this polarization heats up, um, as we're seeing now, you know, I I thought that I was in a position having a background in the Northeast, having an education that I have, and then coming back, kind of bridging that gap between Energy 1.0 and Energy 2.0 and the traditional and really where things are going, that th- thought process, and then the, you know, really the human capital and the portion of that. And I, I really thought that I was in a position to make an impact. So you started your first business and you started it. It's called Climate Commodities. You started it here while as a student at Penn. Where did you get the idea and what's the business about? It's interesting. I actually did an independent study titled Climate Commodities, the Future of Raw Materials. And one of the first things that you get when you're discussing with people in the oil and gas industry you know, the, the future of work, the future of how that industry is going to go, the future of renewables. You know, one of the biggest things that comes up is, well, we don't do any of this here in the United States. You know, how, how are we going to maintain permanent employment on the basis of transitioning to renewables? You know, all this stuff is made elsewhere. And so, you know, what, what became really, really interesting to me is that you know, if we're going to have a successful energy transition, the marketplace for future materials uh, and access to future materials needs to exist partially in the United States and the broader Western world. They're sleepy markets that serve industrial processes, and a whole new industry is emerging that creates demand pressure on them. People don't speak about this enough because it's not really a U.S. business right now, but there's major disruption in the demand profile for these products on the basis of a new industry needing them and being very critical to that industry as well. And so, you know, I explored this uh, and looked at, okay, you know, through this independent study, looked at, there's a couple of things here. One, you know, if you have a solar, as, as you know very well, you know, you build a solar or a wind farm during construction, there's a lot of jobs, right? It's, it's a big employment generator in certain jurisdictions. Whereas if you think about once that's operating, you know, there's two to four people maintaining that, right? versus maybe 100, 200 during construction, versus if you have you know, a polysilicon production plant or a solar panel manufacturing facility, that profile is much different. And that's a very, uh, that's permanent employment. And I think that what's, what's interesting is to my earlier point, um, I kind of tried to look at, you know, what's the future of raw materials in the context of reusing people that we already have in hmm. the natural resource value chain. And so that's how it started. And it really evolved into wow, this is a much bigger problem than I ever would have thought of. And so we set up myself and my main partner, Ben Vanmart, who uh, was at, uh, he was a portfolio manager, Millennium Management, which is a $60 billion hedge fund in New York, and then uh, worked at Blue Travis Energy, one of the big three commodity traders. We set up a business to address that by providing uh, commercialization. So in a project, you have a feedstock contract, which is effectively your intake, the, and you have an offtake contract, which is a sales contract. So those two things represent the revenue instruments in the sustainable infrastructure industry. And we set up a business really styled as a physical trader, servicing that ecosystem at the onset to really to what we believe um, serve as a commercialization agent in this energy transition to help some of these projects get these critical revenue instruments and then really participate dynamically in the rollout of the Western uh, value chain underpinning the energy transition business, and then also serve 
really eyes, especially for some of these newer processes and newer technologies where there's you know, first of a kind, second of a kind output, really using some of our experience to dynamically deal with. If you're going to sell that to a large chemical company, a large oil and gas company, really some of the background that we had on the oil and gas side in helping these smaller companies that are really technologists, not um, market commercial people, business people, and how do you sell to one of those businesses? Walk through, you know, this is entering their facility, basic things like quality control, quality assurance, and really the commercial side of that developing energy technology, energy transition ecosystem that we believe is fundamentally underserved on the commodity and resource value chain. We're talking about enabling commercialization of these value chains here in the United States, which is a critical issue that the current administration, for example, is, is, is pointed out so that these industries can get underway here in the United States, create alternatives to the, the foreign value chains that have raised so much concern. At the same time, create long-term jobs in manufacturing, which is where the long-term jobs are oftentimes in, in bulk in the clean energy sector. There is a lot of geopolitical issues surrounding this matter, but you know, I kind of looked at it when, when we got the, the idea for this and I was, was writing this paper. The most important thing that, that I thought about um, that really is not, you know, I haven't heard someone say this once that I think is really the most potent piece of quantitative information is that if you're going to have a multi-trillion dollar stimulus to support the development of a new industry, or you're really going to, as a, as a government or a sovereign, bet on the future of an industry, it, it's fundamentally irresponsible to not capture the permanent employment associated with that if the taxpayers of the state are going to bear that burden. And so I, I think that fundamentally, irrespective of the situation with the United States and China, if the U.S. is going to, as collectively with taxpayers ultimately being on, on the hook for this, catalyze a new industry, we have to capture some of that permanent employment or it'd be a disservice to the populace. Now, you've created a second business, which I, I believe is associated with the one that we've just been talking to. Can you tell me about this one? As we started to grow the business, we made a number of investments. And you know, one of the things that we invested in a renewable power platform, um, alternative fuels platform, uh, and we're now seeing a project um, that's going to be one of the first uh, at-scale industrial minerals uh, facilities built outside of China in its specific value chain since the 1980s. And, you know, really what my focus has shifted to, uh, and Ben as well, and our core team, is addressing what we believe to be a key service gap in climate insurance. And so as we've grown the business, one of the biggest things that has size-constrained us is lack of availability of specialty insurance that underpins these commodity transactions in the supply chain and the subsequent underlying uh, climate technology projects or manufacturing projects uh, that are placed within the value chain, not carrying the same level of technological risk. And so what we've really stumbled upon, we believe, is that not only is there capital gaps in this energy transition, and there are service gaps. And you know, we first started with, there's a commercialization service gap, and that's how climate commodities started. And you know, what we believe to be a complete step change in how things work is that you know, there is an, a service gap manifesting itself in insurance that has size-constrained 
our business and has created a lot of issues in the broader energy technology, energy transition value chain. And we set up a company, Climate Risk Partners, specifically to address this due to the magnitude of the problem. And that's now one of our core focuses in my day-to-day focus. And so I I think that there's a number of, of issues that we first clung to there, but that, you know, the really is that in the insurance industry, you know, you've got a sleepy industry that really has not had to dynamically deal with climate change outside of losses in the weather space. When as we're really thinking about this is, you know, from our perspective, we're not using weather related products. We're, We're purely transferring business risks from the investing community into the insurance community, which I think as we progress, this is the key thing to think about. The way you've explained this to me is that the energy transition essentially means that new technologies are being scaled for market before they really have a track record, right? And this inherently implies risk. So you've got new technologies. They haven't really been scaled before, but they are being recruited into the effort to address climate change in many different ways before they have that track record. And as you've explained to me as well, investors at a certain level really don't like dealing with this type of technology and process risk. That's something that's dealt with more at the venture capital stage. But once you start scaling these businesses, you get to larger magnitudes of investment. Can you explain a little bit more why this is the case, why this technology risk exists in the clean energy space, the climate space, and a little bit more how it presents barriers to investment? One of the critical things that is in any company that is small or that is growing or that requires outside capital, especially with the case of, just think about a a technology business, right? Typically, the person who started it is fundamentally a technologist themselves. It's their life's work. They may have a PhD. um, And, you know, they require, if it's, this is a hardware infrastructure centric transition. And so, you know, if you invent a new technology or build a new technology, you know, it takes roughly 10 to 15 years to do this end to end. And then subsequently, you've got to fund the research and development and the rollout of physical infrastructure. And so the critical inflection point is the transition from being venture capital, early stage funded, to being private equity or infrastructure funded. And so what's interesting in, in that life cycle is that Venture capital, by design, takes technology risk the, uh, and helps fund and develop this hardware. For the energy transition to scale, that company has to change from being venture capital-backed, the person who takes technology risk, to unlocking the broader capital market, which constitutes private equity, infrastructure finance, fixed income investors, people that will invest in something for a dividend. You know, infrastructure is great for that because it doesn't, doesn't trade like a stock or a bond. You know, it stays, it's not marked to market, um, and it provides a dividend. And so that capital market area is an order of magnitude larger than venture capital, which these companies have to transition rapidly to meet climate targets from that venture to infrastructure finance slash broader capital market. And so the issue is that that broader capital market does not take technology risk by design. The other key issue is that that market does not take significant amounts of credit risk, which is a whole other issue that compounds this matter. And so historically, if you look at how the oil and gas industry developed, um, and I'll break this into a few areas. If you have, let's say, for example, I am 
building a facility and I'm going to make a hundred cans of Coca-Cola per year. And I'm going to use a new process and I'm going to sell that Coca-Cola to people who do not have a Moody's S&P credit rating. But they're established people, they're established businesses, and the probability of defaulting is relatively low. And so if you're a bank looking at this fundamental situation, you're an investor and you're saying, okay, it's like this, this facility is very straightforward. You know, they're going to make Coca-Cola, they're going to make 100 of these a year, and they're going to sell them on fixed contracts to an identified person. And so the, what are the risks in that really? The first thing an investor that is in the broader capital market are searching for, because keep in mind, what they're trying to do is get a fixed return that looks like fixed income, right? So that annual payment is relatively stable. And so the way you can do that um, outside of, and this is inter-insurance and commercialization services that you can take inside the facility. I, I mentioned I'm using a new process. To make these Coca-Colas, yeah. But there's one piece of that process that's different. 85% of the facility is like a normal Coca-Cola facility, right? So there's a small portion that's different. The rest is the same. Subsequently, the, uh, for that piece of the new process, I have historical data that shows how this is performed the, at a lab and de demonstration scale. And then I now am going to go and get a third-party engineering report that provides probability of performance levels the, on a go-forward basis. So the likelihood that, that those 100 cans of Coke are actually produced in the year, not 85, because some process issue came up. Exactly. And so the uh, if I can take out, so let's say, for example, in this situation, I can get a bank loan, right? And that bank loan, I can buy an insurance policy that says if I make 60 cans, if I, if this, so if this works and produces 60 cans, right, that interest payment on that bank loan is covered by the insurer who has a high credit rating on the back end of this. So all of a sudden, I have used transferred the risk from the investor to the insurance community and calmed the bank, which probably leads to better terms, the uh, keeping more, dealing with traditional banks, so no dilution, which means you give up part of your business, um, the, uh, and then probably a lower interest rate as well. And so that fundamental piece there, whether that's applied to hydrogen, the performance of solar panels, performance of solar instruments, performance of battery technology, if you can shift the risk of performance to be shared by the insurance community to have a greater level of certainty, whether it's a small company that is doing its first-of-a-kind or second-of-a-kind project, or it's a large project seeking to access a, the bond market, for example, that level of certainty is critical to getting scale faster and providing a solution that really de-risks the infrastructure project and then de-bottlenecks capital from the broader investment community. And so this is one critical area. The second is that let's take the facility. So we figured out one problem, right? The first issue is that the probability of the facility doing what it is going to do. Or what it's promised to do, right? The risk is shared by the investor and the insurance community, allowing the investor to probably make more investments via the project to build more of these facilities. The, uh, and then the insurer to actually have what, you know, in this insurance speak, this, this is an efficacy or a warranty product, which is in most cases been great business for insurers historically in the oil and gas and related infrastructure industry. So it's, it's a win-win-win here. And it's just early days in the 
insurance community of adapting to service the climate tech community. And so that's one piece of it. The second piece, let's take our, our, our Coca-Cola project. The second piece, right? We are selling 100 cans a year on a fixed contract to someone who does not have a credit rating. And you know, not every single purchaser of the uh, climate positive output, so the sales contract, just like the Coca-Cola cans, is going to have perfect credit or have a Moody's or S&P rating behind them that says, hey, look, like this, this is rated, this is safe, right? There's just no way that's going to happen if we're going to reach these climate targets, which touch every person, every business. And so in this case, you know, the investor, the bank is saying, wow, this is potentially a risky, it's not rated, it doesn't have the stamp on it. This is potentially risky, right? So what if you were to say, okay, so I'm selling 100 cans per year, right? In the event of a default, Default of the customer. The purchaser, yes. Yep. What if I can buy an insurance policy on the credit risk of that customer that will, let's say, pay out the uh, 50% of the sales contract, right? The, uh, so in the event that there's a default, my Coca-Cola production business the, uh, loses the amount of 50% of that contract. So 50 bottles of in production, they take a loss on that in the event of a default. They take that. That's part of it. The second 50 bottles, the insurer absorbs that loss. And so if you can take out an insurance policy in that fashion, what you've effectively done is shared the risk of the customer with the insurance community as an investor, which significantly de-risks the project. And also from a bank perspective, significantly de-risks how they think about this. When we're talking about insurance and we're talking about insuring new technologies, inherently risky technologies, to me, that implies high insurance premiums. And we're talking about on the technology side, these are new young companies that you've characterized as technologists, entrepreneurs. They don't have a whole lot of capital. How are they going to afford this insurance? So if you take my example with the Coca-Cola facility using a newer technology, you know, as that insurance policy comes into effect, what you would do to mitigate some of the risk, well, there's two, there's two risks there. One, the, uh, that obviously for the insurer, if you're dealing with a small company, that the company's not going to pay, right? The, uh, and, and so what you do there is charge upfront the insurance premium into the uh, capital expenditure. So if you have a $100 million project in the insurance the over the, the protection period is 10 million, you would charge that and pay it up front. So the insurance company is not taking credit risk, which helps the, the pricing there. You mean the, the technology company is paying that premium up front? The technology company is paying it, but keep in mind, I said it charges the project. So the bank and the investors are actually the ones paying for this indirectly. Hmm, okay. And so the, the affordability component, you have to really look at in having these insurance protections in place, the, how does this increase the probability of the project getting financed? And then subsequently, you know, if you can spend 10 million to save 30 million in interest and related costs, or for example, if this type of protection is the difference between going back to my earlier point, using venture-like capital and giving up 30% of the equity in your business versus getting someone to just invest in the project and keeping that 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 nest egg to yourself. You know, th th this is extremely impactful. And actually, if 
looked at in the right lens, very affordable relative to the other options these companies uh, and participants face. As you just said, if your interest rate goes down because you've got a more secure business over the haul, you save money. Is that kind of a key takeaway here? Yes. And, and one more thing is that if you're a technology, as I mentioned earlier, a technologist that built a business, let's say, for example, you build a technology, you're ready to go, you're commercializing it, you're creating a lot, you're, you're hugely catalytic to the energy transition, and you show up to a large infrastructure finance, a private equity group in New York, for example, and they say, wow, there's a lot of risk there. I need 80% of your business to take this risk. That sucks. You just spent your whole life building out this technology, and now you're going to hand that over. If you can use insurance-related products to avoid doing that, you're going to do everything you can to take that route. So insurance is obviously, as we're discussing, one possible option here. There's also blended finance, right? Which is often used to get new technology scaled. Where does that fit in this? Is, is that addressing the same kind of problem we're talking about in a different way? Blended finance is talked a lot about in the context of, of scaling clean energy. There's two different things here. Development financing is a, is a critical piece. And so if you look at it this way, is that actually, I think that one thing we've had a lot of discussion about, and I, I think is, is really underappreciated, is the nature of development financing interacting with insurance over the long haul. And so we're, we're particularly focused on this in the medium to long term on the basis of your insurance being a key linchpin in maintaining resilience in some of these communities that may have existential economic damage uh, emanating from perhaps loss of property insurance. So every, you know, every person in that jurisdiction is now on the hook for their entire home value in the case of a severe event. And then subsequently, for sustainable infrastructure, you know, the, the government, the U.S. government specifically, is, you know, is the most powerful credit enhancement uh, on a global basis. And that interplay with insurance is quite interesting to catalyze more of these policies coming out to market. And then subsequently, in the context of you know, really integrating development financing, shifting that into you know, developing countries and other parts of the world where this is not going to become available without a government backstop. And so I think that, you know, to that, to that exact point, the way we think about this uh, from a commercialization perspective, outside of what's already being done, the government, to a certain degree, can come up to the or development finance institution come to the plate and actually catalyze more insurance to be done by stepping into a risk seat. And I do think that that will occur. Increase. This has been done in the insurance industry for a long time with floods, hurricanes, related issues. And I think that this will increasingly be done to absorb risk in sustainable infrastructure and related supply chains, especially if we enter some kind of exacerbated geopolitical situation or shock event that necessitates more rapid change than we have now. So Nick, getting back to the question of insurance or the issue of insurance for a moment, I think a fundamental question here is if this is an insurance product that we're talking about, this insuring new emerging climate technologies, why hasn't the traditional insurance industry done more of this? There's a couple issues there. I think that, you know, unfortunately, the design of the insurance industry has disincentivize people to innovate. And, and that's that's really an issue. And I think the other thing here is that you have two dynamics at play at once. One, the uh, the insurance community, due to the exacerbation and severity of climate change and how rapidly that's setting in, has experienced weather-related losses 
in excess of what has been predicted over the last five to seven years. And subsequently, you've seen announcements from large insurance companies um, like your Munich Re that have said, we're not doing any more oil and gas. And so the issue there is that in the insurance community, people who are addressing renewables, you have on the one hand, you know, the, 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 the portion where there's been significant loss in the weather side, where their capacity to do this is just getting pulled back due to past losses. And then on the other side, really dealing with these business risks, like the technology piece, other matters related to that, the fastest way to remove smart people from thinking about a problem within an organization is to take the core business line that supports them and shut its volume off. Um, and so what's happened here is that you have a lot of these groups that have shut that volume off, said we're not doing any more oil and gas, which directly leads to depleted compensation over the medium to long term in those areas at these corporates, creating a human capital issue. You mean for, as as jobs, right? Depleted yeah. compensation. Yeah, people don't, there's not as much opportunity to make a living off of it. People in the insurance industry are risk averse and you know, you create a no man's land situation where you stop with their current activity and tell them they're going to participate in a new activity that's not properly defined yet. And so it really takes smaller, innovative, nimble companies to create real impact here, hence why I think we exist. And then, you know, subsequently you have this, this issue here that there's just not a lot of human capital specific to climate being applied to insurance. You know, that skill set that isn't that hasn't been the case in the past is hugely in demand in private equity, um, asset management, investment banking, and other areas of financial services uh, that have been more appealing to graduates and professionals. You have started new businesses in areas where you've seen opportunity. And I wonder if to, to close out our conversation here from someone who has your experience, is there any advice that you might give to current students who are seeking to start new careers in the climate space and climate technology, what advice would you give them? There's a few things. And, you know, my view on this, I got some really good advice on this that I think I'm going to pass on here is that, you know, the a university, no matter if you're studying science, policy, business, wh whatever it may be, the a university is a laboratory where you get to test your ideas at a very fundamental level. Um, and you can be right, you can be wrong, you can be somewhere in between, but there's no economic consequence for being wrong. And I, I got that idea, and that was a critical piece of advice that really led to me when I was at Penn um, taking the step to start climate commodities. Just say, for example, we had had a problem and you know it hadn't have worked, or it would have gone the wrong way, I still would have come out with a pen degree. And I, I, I think that there is you know, a fair amount of opportunity in getting employed with that. And I think that you know, that really was one thing that shaped me. And I think that structurally, we need more professionals focused on climate. We need more entrepreneurs. We need more people that are fielding solutions, that are thinking outside of the box, that are taking risks that mitigates the risk facing the planet. And you know, a university seat is the best place to test your ideas. And you'll never be in a situation where you can take that much risk without any consequences. And so I would, I would say that you know, for anyone who has any kind of entrepreneurial flame anywhere inside their heart, the best time to take that step is when you're a student. Nick, thanks very much for talking. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. Today's guest has been Nick Rolliter, climate entrepreneur and a former Penn student and editorial assistant to Energy Policy Now. Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for our archive of more than 150 podcast episodes, as well as research in upcoming in-person and virtual events. 
To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.